Thank you for joining us. For your encouragement, we bring to you this biblical sermon from Dr. Charlie Dates, preached at the Progressive Baptist Church in Chicago. We hope that it leaves you refreshed and inspired. If you're ever in Chicago on a Sunday, we'd love to have you in worship with us. Join now. This message already in progress. If you have your copies of the scripture, can you meet me in the fourth chapter of John? We're going to read from the seventh verse through the 14th verse. If you got it, say, I got it. And the word of God reads as such. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away to the city to buy food. So the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, though you are a Jew, are asking me for a drink, though I am a Samaritan? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus replied to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have to ask who I am. He would give you this living water. She said to him, sir, you have no bucket and this well is very deep. Where then do you get this living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? Who gave us the well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus answered and said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never be thirsty. But the water that I will give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to eternal life. We're going to stop there, media. As I was reading and studying over this text in preparation for Sunday, I thought of the lack of evangelism in most churches around the country, that the four walls are preeminent and those outside the walls are being forgotten. And then I thought about LeBron James, the fifth best player ever. He had a campaign and it was, I am a witness. And the world rallied around that. You had celebrities saying, I am a witness of the greatness of LeBron James. I want to tag this text in our exchange this morning. For the Lord Jesus Christ, can I get a witness? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to sit at your feet, to receive our daily bread, to be nourished in our inner man and spirit. Father, I know that this desk, the responsibilities of it is way too heavy for a mere mortal. So I ask you now, stand up in my body, oh God. Think with my mind. Give me concision of speech clarity of heart and mind, conviction 
and Holy Ghost power to declare the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I pray that someone who walked in here today who doesn't know Jesus Christ and the pardon of their sin, someone who knows Jesus, but they're stuck in the rotation of sin, repent, sin, repent, would come to trust you with everything today. Bread of heaven, oh bread of heaven, feed us until we can take no more. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Let every praying heart say, amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. In the opening pages of his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, Philip Yancey tells a story about a friend of his who served in rehabilitation ministry on the west side of Chicago. He says that one night as they were out and passing out pluggers and praying for folk who were struggling with addiction, that they ran into a young lady who was a prostitute. Say this young lady began to tell them all about her life, sharing some very gruesome details. Says that she had been in the game for so long that she had become undesirable to her customers. So much so that she did something that will make you gasp make some of us cry, she began to rent out her two-year-old daughter because she could found out she could make more money in doing that than in her damaged body. To which one of the ministry workers said, well, did it ever cross your mind to go to the church? To which she replied, the church? The church? If I was to go to the church, those people would only make me feel worse. It's a warning to us today that when the church doesn't share the authentic biblical Jesus, broken people remain fractured. Howard Thurman would argue this point as well. He tells the story about how his grandmother, who was formerly enslaved, never read any of the Pauline epistles. She said because the slave preacher would often point to one text that slaves ought to obey their masters. He wrote in his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, that the church in America does not share the same ethos and fervor for the lost, the least, the broken, and those who are marginalized as does the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, it cannot be denied that too often the weight of the Christian movement has been on the side of the strong and the powerful, against the weak and oppressed. This, despite the gospel. This goes to warn us again, church, that when the church doesn't share the authentic Jesus, biblical Christ, the disinherited remains disenfranchised. The church in America is suffering from identity crisis. Instead of sharing Jesus now, we've put a premium on the superficial and carnal in this social media era. We fail to serve the marginalized, 
but we prioritize brunch with our besties. Don't believe me, check the post. We fail to pray for our annoying neighbor because he or she parks in our yard or their dog takes a poop in our finely cut grass, but we'll offer thoughts and praise for whatever is twin trending on Twitter. Don't believe me, check the post. Uh, we're hesitant for fear of pushback from colleagues, coworkers, and friends to share the very words of Christ on our social media outlets, but we're quick to quote Kendrick, quick to quote Drake, and quick to quote Beyonce. Don't believe me, church. Check, the, check your posts. The church forfeits our opportunity to witness and transcend culture because our witness is greatly compromised by our proximity to the same culture that we should be impacting. When the church doesn't share Jesus now, she doesn't extend an invitation of hope to those who are in our proximity, yet suffering in silence. We meet a sister this morning with a sketchy past and some shady living arrangements. But her encounter with Jesus is more about grace than judgment. It's more about mercy and compassion than condemnation. Our sister's impromptu one-on-one -on -one with Jesus stands to remind us, in the economy of God, hope is discovered in the same conditions that cause despair. While Matthew distinguishes Jesus' Jewish heritage, connecting Old Testament prophecy with New Testament fulfillment, the Apostle John wrote to a broader audience. John invites his readers to get to know the authentic historical Jesus, not the rights Jesus, you know, God, guns, and country. No, no, not that portrait of Jesus, uh, not the left Jesus, you know, this emasculated pacifist who just allows everything to go. No, 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 not that portrait of Jesus, but the historical biblical Jesus, the Jesus who was born without the agency of a human father in Bethlehem's manger, the Jesus who spent his early childhood in Africa as a refugee, the Jesus who was raised in the low-income projects of Nazareth in Galilee, but John tells us something else that nobody ever preached like Jesus, E. Every funeral he eulogized, the deceased opened their eyes at their own funeral. The demon-possessed received peace and were clothed in their right mind. And sinners were delivered from sin and shame at the preaching of our Lord. But he goes even further because nobody prayed like Jesus. He prayed until Lazarus got up and removed his grave clothes. He prayed into pictures of the sunny water, took one look and heard his voice and blushed and turned into the best Merlot you've ever sipped in your life. He prayed for our salvation into sweats of blood filled and fell in Gethsemane's garden, but nobody else died like Jesus. Jesus died until death fell exhausted at his feet. Jesus died and to death became a doorway for the resurrection power of God in the lives of all of those who confess that he is Savior and Lord. So let me ask you this morning, my brother, my sister, what stands in your life that needs resurrection? You need peace? Take it to Jesus. 
You need hope. Take it to Jesus. Has all your dreams been shattered? Has life snatched away the gusto that you had? You have one only option this morning. And take it. Take it to Jesus. This text is tailored to teach us the trauma of human depravity yields in obedience when encountering Jesus. Let me share that once again. That's why we ought to share Jesus Christ with the lost among us because the trauma of human depravity yields in obedience when encountering Jesus. It teaches us first and foremost that God doesn't discriminate. The fourth chapter of John opens as Jesus is passing through a Samaritan city named Sychar. Jesus enters this random Samaritan city, walks over to this random well, and encounters this random Samaritan woman. You know, sin oftentimes overpromises but oversells. I can imagine, despite of what many commentators say about this Samaritan sister, that she started her day off like she normally does, that she would get up and go to the local Samaritan Starbucks, order her most favorite uh, Frappuccino. Uh, she, she, she would be tempted to open the door to her bay and revisit the terms of their relationship, but she said, I I'll just wait till tomorrow. And, and while she was waiting on all the gossiping women to leave the well, she decided to bend watch her favorite ratchet television. That's right, the real housewives of Israel. <laughs> a typical, uneventful, routine day in Sychar. Uh, but church, Sychar is a very familiar place for us, isn't it? Uh, Sychar is where humanity surrenders our reality and personhood to sin. It's where our dreams are found buried and forgotten. It's where disappointment has left us with more questions than answers. It's where we're sick and tired of being sick and tired, but we're too tired to do anything about it. Uh, you don't have to say it because your face says amen. It, it says, preacher, you're right in my lane. You're talking about my life right now. And it, if I could be honest, it's where the Lord Jesus Christ found most of us. Because a sychar is where God marries our brokenness with his divine providence. See, long before you were saved, sanctified, and filled with the Holy Ghost, uh, you were in sychar. Uh, long before you, you, you bought them nice suits to come in church, them nice dress and put all of the pretty makeup and got your hair done, uh, you, you, you were pulling on your hair in Sychar. Long before you could quote a scripture of Bible, you could sing your most favorite party song and close out the party, and that's where the Lord found you in Sychar. And why should we share Jesus now? Because we got family stuck in Sychar. We got friends stuck in Sychar. The Bible tells us about so many personalities who the Lord found in Sychar. When Jacob stole Esau's inheritance and tricked his daddy, fleeing home, he was in Sychar. When Peter denied the Lord Jesus Christ three times and left our Savior to die alone, he, he was in Sychar. When Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees and he was killing Christians and persecuting the church, he was in 
Sychar. But if only our family, friends, and coworkers knew that their sin doesn't disqualify them. It makes them eligible for a life-changing encounter with Jesus right there in Sychar. The text says that Jesus came to the Samaritan sister and said, hey, hey sis, uh, it's pretty hot out here. Get, give me something to drink. To which she was offended. You, you being a Jew, ask me, a Samaritan woman, to give you a drink? Who does that? You see, Jews viewed Samaritans as racially inferior. Long ago during the Babylonian exile, some Jews didn't, never went back to the promised land. And so they intermarried with the Canaanites, and they meshed their religious beliefs with their religious beliefs, their culture with their culture, and this is what you have come out, Samaritans. Jesus crosses the cultural and religious norms in addressing the Samaritan sister. Part of Jewish custom was that Jewish men were never supposed to engage an unknown or unfamiliar woman in conversation. In this first century society, Jesus' conversation with this Samaritan sister was considered a scandal. Oh, church, don't look at me like this. In 2023, we're more familiar with scandal in our lifetime than Olivia Pope. Thousands of little black girls going missing each year like Diamond Bradley and her sister lost without a trace. Scandal. Freight trains with AR-57s just conveniently stop over in Inglewood and remain there for hours at a time with no police escort or responsibility. Scandal. Black Supreme Court justices repealing the same affirmative action that afforded them to sit in the highest seat in the land talking about it's in hopes of a racial-free America. Scandal. And amidst all the scandals, what really burns my bridges is you have the religious and the irreligious both talking about in the midst of all these scandals. Where's God when the girls go missing? Where's God when they do this to black people? Where is God in the midst of my struggles? Where is God in the midst of my pain? But let me tell you something this morning. The greatest scandal in human history has nothing to do with uh, Governor Greg Abbott relocating migrants to United States cities in, in Greyhound buses. Nor does it have anything to do with the prison, the pipeline, school industrialization. The greatest scandal in human history is that a holy God would be found messing with messy people like us. <laughs> Who's here glad about the scandalous love of God? Don't you know he know everything about you? Everything you ever said, God knows. Everything you ever done, God knows. Every place you ever been, God knows. Let me say it better than that. Everybody you ever done, God knows. Everything you ever drank, God knows. But he had the unmitigated gall to take us broken people and cover us with the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, and present us to the world and say, this is my trophy of grace. Last I checked, the Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were boasted in our sin, 
when we were all in lust with our sin, when we were besties with our sin, when we were on Instagram posing with our sin, when we were offending our family with our sin, when we were ruining friendships with our sin, when we were grieving our spouses with our sin. But God, our sins would have ruined us. But God, our sin would have taken us out. But God, and I can hear the, the hymn writer saying, what love could remember no wrongs we have done? Omniscient, all-knowing, he counts not their sum. Thrown into the sea without bottom ashore. Our sins, there are many. His mercy is more. Can we praise the Lord for his scandalous love? Dr. Perry, I think about this book that was wrote, written in 1961. The brother's name was John Howard Griffith, and he wrote a book called Black Like Me. Uh, brother John did something to this day that still perplexes me. He went to his dermatologist, and he got these injections all over his body to change his pigmentation from a Caucasian man to look like a black man. Then he leaves the doctor's office. He travels and goes on a tour throughout the South to see what it looks like to live as a black man in Jim Crow South. Needless to say, every store that he went into, uh, white women would point at him and say, boy, stop looking at me. Uh, so much so that one restaurant he went to, he got jumped on and they broke four of his ribs and left him within an inch of his life. He wanted to see what it was to be a black man in America during Jim Crow. So he went through a process so he can be black like me. For centuries, God sent representatives, but each one fell short. He sent Noah, but Noah struggled with Hennessy and tequila. He sent Moses, but Moses had anger management issues. He sent David, but David was like 45. He enjoyed touching other men's wives. He sent Jeremiah, but Jeremiah hated church folk, and he lamented about the stubbornness of God's people on his podcast. He sent Samson, but Samson liked to turn up with Philistine girls gone wild. He sent Isaiah, but Isaiah was a man of unclean lips. He sent Hosea, but Hosea's marital scandal ended up front page on Christianity today. It's around about Matthew chapter 1. God say, forget it, I'll go myself. He became pain capable, just like me. He became grief eligible, just like me. And God became a candidate for death, just like me. Because while we were still tipping up in the club, Christ died for us. While we were still enemies with God, he knew that we wouldn't be dressed apart, so he came down himself through, through generations and said, I'm going to save them. I'm going to become just like them, and I'm going to win them to myself because of love. Our reputations wouldn't be worth a dime if he didn't become just like us. Our colleagues wouldn't respect us if he didn't become just like us. Our children and grandchildren would be appalled and say, Nana did what if he didn't become just like us? 
But God is so much a God that he covered our sins with the blood of Jesus Christ. Can we praise on this morning his, his holy name? But not only does this text show that, that God doesn't discriminate, it also says that Jesus offers us divine correction with dignity. He meets this unnamed Samaritan sister at the well, and the Bible says it's about noon. Uh, what's significant and germane to our conversation about the time is most women in this society would go to the well about 8 a.m. in the morning. It was before the sun came out, and they can have enough water to take care of all the chores that they had for the day. And this Samaritan sister decided to wait until noon. It says to us that this Samaritan sister chose to go at this time because there was some things in her life that made her an outcast, even amongst the Samaritans. Shame can do that to us, church. Um, shame can hang over our heads, and it reminds us of the unholy things that we've done in life. The, the reason you don't go around certain people is because you may have a high esteem for them. And when you get into their presence, you think about the things that you have done and shame takes over. The reason why some of us tip into service uh, a half hour after service has started is because um, shame directs our feet to come after everybody else has went into the sanctuary. The reason why some of us go up to the balcony to sit is because if my neighbor only knew what I did last night, they would feel some type of way about sitting next to me. Shame. But worship would be more authentic, and this sanctuary would be fuller if we didn't allow shame to restrict our praise. Because last I checked, the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of the Lord. That, that, that means the deacons have sinned. That means the brothers and sisters who are greeting you at the door have sinned. That means our brothers who we love in the parking lot have sinned. That means everybody that just sang God is in the choir has sinned. That means that the chocolate man standing in front of you preaching the good news of our risen Savior, Jesus Christ, has sinned. But I like how the Bible says it this way, that therefore there is no longer any condemnation in Christ. You may have done the crime, but you ain't got to do the time because Christ has wiped it all away. You may have said that thing, cussed them out, ran them from Monday through Friday, but it's been all washed away because there's no condemnation in Christ. You may have messed up that relationship, stepped out on him and her, but in the eyes of God, all he sees is the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Don't let the devil fool you. Don't let the devil trick you. Don't let the devil tell you what you're worth because you have made mistakes in the past. 
All of us have made mistakes in the past, but it's been all washed away by the blood of Jesus. I think about the text where a sister was caught in the act of adultery, and they bring her to Jesus, and, 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 and they say, we caught this woman. Never mind, they didn't bring the man. We've caught this woman in the act of adultery. And, 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 and they know what the law says, that she and bruh man is supposed to be stoned. So Jesus looks over all of them, and he drops to one knee like Kaepernick, and he begins to write in the sand. I don't know, the text doesn't tell us what he began to write, but in my sanctified mind, he was writing the sins that they had committed just last night. A drunkenness, fornication, lying, stealing. And then they began to drop their stones, it says, from the oldest to the youngest and walk away. Then the Lord Jesus Christ turns to the sister and says, where are those who would condemn you? And she says, they're gone, Lord. And he says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. My brother, my sister, that's your, my message to you this morning. You may have sinned. You may have done the thing thing. But go and sin no more because Jesus doesn't condemn you. The text further goes on and says, and Jesus answered and said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus' engagement with this Samaritan sister is a clear rebuke to our Christian silos. We're living our best Christian lives without consideration of the people who are suffering around us because they don't know Jesus Christ for themselves. Oh, I've seen your checklist. It's right there on the whiteboard in your house. Great church. Check. Uh, uh, lunch with my Christian friends at work. Check. Uh, uh, date night with my Christian friends and couple. Check. Um, hmm, when I'm going to the concert, I got my Christian buddies to go with me, check. We, we, we even got Christian friends for when we want to turn up and get ratchet. <laughs> Meanwhile, the unchurched and unsaved around us remain mired in hopelessness. Uh, Jesus said, if you only knew who it is who asked you for a drink of water, uh, she, 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 she didn't know because the Jews and Samaritans were separated from one another that he can walk on water. Uh, she didn't know that he went to that wedding in Cana and turned water into wine. Uh, she didn't know that he stopped the funeral procession in name and told the widow's dead son, get up, you still got more life to live. She, she, she didn't know that he fed 5,000 migrants who were at the church revival with two pieces of catfish and five slices of white bread from sharks. She, she didn't know that he, he walked across the water when the storm was going on. He, he, he was down in the hole of the ship and he interrupted his Baptist nap to get up and tell the storm, peace, be quiet, and tell the hearts of, of his disciples, 
be still and recognize who you riding with. Uh, she, she didn't know that, that he spoke healing to 10 lepers before they can say unclean, unclean. She, she hadn't heard that, that Jesus was the remedy. He was the bomb in Gilead for our sin-sick souls. I can hear Paul say, how can they call on him if they have not believed? How can they believe in him who, who they've never heard? And how can they hear without a preacher? I, I, I see your minds moving. You say, well, preacher, I, I've never been licensed or ordained to be a preacher. And I say, uh, yes, you have. Uh, when, you, when you called on Jesus to come into your heart, uh, you were deputized to evangelize. And so I'm deputizing you once again so you know. And you say, well, where's my pulpit? Uh, the cubicle you sit in is your pulpit. The, the desk that you set it is your pulpit. That, that police car that you drive is your pulpit. That, that, that bench you stand in front of as an attorney is your pulpit. Everywhere you go, your pulpit is your personality to share Jesus now. And what should we tell them? Tell them that Jesus is still a way maker. Tell them that Jesus is still a bridge over troubled water. Tell them that Jesus can still move mountains. Tell them that Jesus is still a heart fixer. Tell them that Jesus is still a mind regulator. Tell them that Jesus is still a friend of sinners. And if that don't kill them, tell them that Jesus is still the truth, the way, and the life. That's why we ought to share Jesus now. Not only does Jesus give us divine correction with dignity, not only does he show us that God doesn't discriminate, he also exposes our counterfeit gods. Look at verse 16. It says, Jesus says to her, uh, go call your husband and tell him to come here. And the woman says, I have no husband. Jesus said, you're right. <laughs> You've had five husbands. And the man you live with right now, he belongs to somebody else. Church, the Lord is not trying to shade our sister. He's exposing her substitute gods. Relationships had been her God five husbands, and now she would compromise her reputation to be with a man that was already in a relationship. Why should we share Jesus now? It's because far too often we accept the illegitimate substitute for the actual promise of God. Jesus is ultimately identifying that which we worship. The Holy Spirit through Jeremiah warned that our hearts are desperately wicked. Blaise Pastel admonished us and said that the human heart has a hole in it that only God can fill. Tim Keller interpreted both in saying our hearts are factories for idols. But my favorite quote is by a brother named David Foster Wallace, who expressed our misappropriation for worship in these words. He said that everybody worships. The only choice we have is what we worship. If you worship money, you will never have enough. 
If you worship beauty and tummy tucks and face injections, you will always feel ugly. If you worship power, you will always feel weak and afraid. If you worship education, you will end up feeling stupid and a fraud. The particular thing about worship is that it's our default setting. Jesus never condemns people for worship. He just gives our worship a GPS. For weeks, the son had dropped hints to his dad. Hey, dad, it's my 18th birthday. I graduate in less than three weeks. You know what I want, man. And he would drop muscle magazines on the table in the bathroom on the counter so that his dad could get the hint that he want, wanted the newest charger. And so time went on, his birthday came and he woke up and his mama was cooking his favorite breakfast and she was singing his favorite hymn. And as he got dressed, brushed his teeth, took a shower and looked out of the window, there was no charger. And he was so upset with his dad that he called his best friend and said, hey, bro, we're going to the same college. We graduate in two weeks, and I'm upset with my dad. I'm not staying here anymore. Can I come and stay with you for these last two weeks? To which he goes to stay with his friend. They graduate. They go to college. In the first semester of school, dad falls gravely ill. Dad is sick, and it looks like he may not make it. The son goes home to help mom take care of things around the house. He goes in his room, and it's left exactly how he left it. He looks on the stand, and it's a box. He opens the box, and it's a Bible. He opens the Bible, and it's a note. And the note says, hey, son, I know that you wanted that car more than anything. Here's the title, and here's the key. But I wanted to give it to you in this Bible to show you that God and his word always have preeminence in your life. He says to the son, he says, now, I know you're a college student, that's why I didn't set up any payments on this car. Just like our Lord Jesus Christ, I paid it off. <laughs> why should we share Jesus with the unchurched and unsaved? Because Jesus paid it all. Yeah. My brother, you don't have to cry yourself to sleep no more because Jesus paid it all. My sister, you don't have to pace the room back and forth all night because Jesus paid it all. You don't have to suffer in silence anymore because Jesus paid it all. You don't have to be worried down with worry and regret because Jesus paid it all. How did Jesus pay it all, you ask? Well, he put on humanity that humanity may put on divinity. As a child, he frightened the king. In his adolescence, he perplexed the elders. In his adulthood, he silenced the roaring seas. He never wrote a book but libraries can't contain the books that have been written about him. He never wrote a song, 
but every genre of music sing praises to his holy name. The prophet Isaiah called him wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. Herod could not kill him. Satan could not seduce him. Death could not destroy him. The grave could not hold him. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, dead, and buried. And Jesus died. He died to death died. He died to sin, apologized. But you know that's not how the story ends. Because early on Sunday morning, I, I wish I had a church with me this morning. Early on Sunday morning, he got up with all, with all power in his hand. And because he got up with all power in his hand, I think we can declare war on hell. I can hear the hymn writer sing it. Satan, we're going to tear your kingdom down. Uh, oh, Satan, the mothers are going to pray your kingdom down. Satan, I heard the preachers are going to preach your kingdom down. Uh, you've been building your kingdom all over this land. But we got a warning for you today, Satan. We're going to tear your kingdom down. And this is why we're going to tear down the kingdom of Satan, to take back our broken men and build them up in the name of Jesus, to take back our women and protect them in the name of Jesus, to take back our children and encourage them in the name of Jesus, to take back our families and nurture them in the name of Jesus, to take back our communities and secure them in the name of Jesus, to take back our city and revive it in the name of Jesus. Tell them there's hope for the hopeless. Tell them there's rest for the restless. Tell them there's peace for the weary. Tell them there's comfort for the brokenhearted. Tell them there's joy for the bereaved. Was it for crimes that I have done that he groaned upon the tree? Amazing grace, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Well, might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ the mighty maker died for man the creature's sin. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light and the burdens of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight. And now I'm happy all the day. Are you happy because of the grace and mercy of God, church? Are you rejoiceful because he still can heal broken people. Praise his holy name. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week for another uplifting and inspiring message by Dr. Charlie Dates, Senior Pastor of the Progressive Baptist Church in Chicago. For more information about our church, visit ProgressiveChicago.org. Progress is yours through the gospel of Jesus Christ.